welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Over the last four or five weeks, we've been in a series in the book of Ecclesiastes that we've called Solomon in a Postmodern World. The reason we've called it that is that the book of Ecclesiastes, with its message, is so incredibly relevant in terms of where we sit as a culture. We've been following Solomon through this book as he is searching, trying to find the summum bonum of life, the meaning of life. We have worked with a metaphor that C.S. Lewis uses talking about um, ethics, and, and he talks about three kinds of ethics, individual ethics, social ethics, and normative ethics. And he likens those to uh, a fleet of ships at sea. The fact that the ships stay together in formation and don't crash into one another is about social ethics. The fact that each individual ship is seaworthy and able to stay afloat is about individual ethics. Normative ethics is about the issue of what are their sailing orders? Why are they at sea? And as we introduced this series, we talked about the fact that our culture focuses almost entirely on social ethics, how to avoid collisions, you know, and and our society says the way to avoid collisions is to be incredibly tolerant of everybody else's view. We aren't so concerned about individual ethics. Uh, We really don't care what people do in their own private life, provided it doesn't impinge on social ethics. So you can do whatever you like in private so long as you don't have collisions with other people. When it comes to normative ethics, our culture is totally ignorant. We haven't got a clue. We do not know why we're at sea, what, what our sailing orders are. In fact, our culture says, you know what, we're, we're the top of the evolutionary totem pole at present. We are no different from, we're an extension of the beasts. And as we've been following through um, Solomon, we notice that that's exactly what he's talking about. Um, we've followed Solomon as he's gone down a number of tracks trying to find out what life is about. He goes down the road of enlightenment. He goes down the road of enjoyment, wine, woman, and song. With both those two roads, he comes back and says, um, futile, absolutely pointless, meaningless. We saw in chapter 3 how uh, that beautiful poem about times and seasons, as beautiful as it is, for Solomon, it's really about pessimism and fatalism, time just rolling on with no purpose, with no meaning under the sun. Solomon's search is a secular search. He's not searching in terms of his relationship with God. He's doing this search for meaning on a horizontal level without any vertical perspective. There's no relationship with God. There's no um, responding to revelation. There's no acknowledgement of spiritual realities even. He's trying to find the meaning of life really without God. Last week, we looked at Solomon's cry for justice in a world characterized by evil and suffering. And his conclusion was there isn't any and that we aren't any different from the beasts. But But we note that there is this cry. There's intuitively the cry in every single one of us, it's not fair, that's not right. The world isn't in order. And I suggested to you last week in a world under the sun where there isn't any spiritual reality, that cry has no substance. There's nothing you can base that on. Um, People who, who don't believe in God 
not only can't answer the question, why is there evil and suffering in the world, they can't even justify the question. They're trying to compare a crooked line with a straight line that doesn't exist. There's only a straight line if there's an objective standard. There's only an objective standard if there's a moral law. There's only a moral law if there's a moral law giver. And once you remove the moral law giver, then you've, you, you are reduced to the realm of subjective preference, okay? And that's where our culture has come to. The fact that there is a cry in every single human heart for justice is, as C.S. Lewis says, a rumor from another world. I want to share with you tonight about Solomon's pursuit of another area. He goes, he talks, observes and comments about another pathway that people regularly go down to try and find meaning, and it's the pursuit of wealth, okay? So I'm going to read two passages from Ecclesiastes, one in chapter 2 and one in chapter 5. The one in chapter 2 starts in verse 17. It's the message translation, and it reads, I hate life. Great way, great way to start. This guy's in trouble. I hate life. As far as I can see, what happens on earth is a bad business. It's smoke and spitting into the wind. And I hated everything I had accomplished and accumulated on this earth. I can't take it with me. No, I have to leave it to whoever comes after me. Whether they're worthy or worthless, and who's to tell, they'll take over the earthly results of my intense thinking and hard work. Smoke. That's when I called it quits. Gave up on anything that could be hoped for on this earth. What's the point of working your fingers to the bone if you hand over what you've worked for to someone who never lifted a finger for it? Smoke, that's what it is. A bad business from start to finish. So what do you get from a life of hard labor? Pain and grief from dawn to dusk. Never a decent night's rest. Nothing but smoke. Then he goes on in chapter five and says, the one who loves money is never satisfied with money, nor the one who loves wealth with big profits. More smoke. More loot. The more loot you get, the more looters show up. And what's the fun in that? To be robbed in broad daylight. Hard, honest work earns a good night's sleep, whether supper is beans or steak, but a rich man's belly gives him insomnia. Here's a piece of bad luck I've seen happen. A man hoards far more wealth than is good for him and then loses it all in a bad business deal. He fathered a child but hasn't a cent left to give to him. He arrived naked from the womb of his mother. He'll leave in the same condition with nothing. This is bad luck, for sure. Naked he came, naked he went. So what's the point of working for a salary of smoke? All for a miserable life spent in the dark. This guy is seriously depressed. And he makes three basic observations about this pursuit of wealth. Number one, it's hard to get. Number two, it's hard to keep. And number three, it's hard to part with. If you like, a little more complicated, the insatiability of wealth, the instability of wealth, and the inability of wealth to secure you. Let's look at those three headings. Number one, it's hard to get the insatiability of wealth. In chapter two, the portion we read in the King James passage, it uses the word labor six times. It uses the word toil four times. It uses the word striving and burdensome. You put those together and you get a sense of how difficult it is to actually accumulate wealth. And the Hebrew words are very intense. They have the idea of travail, of sorrow, of grief, of pain, even of perversity. And the reality is some people do get wealthy and the, and, and the reason they get wealth, wealthy is their perversity. One of the great difficulties in terms of acquiring wealth is the ability to know how much is enough. 
And that's where this phrase, the insatiability of wealth comes in. Because the experience seems to be that the goalposts keep moving. And that no matter how much you get, you can't actually satisfy that desire. The passage started, the one who loves money is never satisfied with money. And the one who loves wealth with big profits. You can't be satisfied. It seems that the more we try to slake our thirst with wealth, the more it grows. It's like drinking seawater to try and quench your thirst. Now, through this message, a number of times I'm going to give you some phrases that start with, the more you have. And the idea of this is basically just to try and help you remember what Solomon is saying about the pursuit of wealth. And the first one is, the more you have, the more you want. Benjamin Franklin's observation so many years ago was the more a man has, the more he wants. Instead of filling a vacuum, it actually makes one. The Jewish banker, John D. Rockefeller, was once asked, well, how much money does it take to make a man satisfied? And he said, just just a little more. You see, we human beings are desiring creatures. We hunger for much more than simply basic biological needs. We hunger for love. We hunger for significance. Nietzsche would say we hunger for power. There are these deep desires within us, but the problem with desire is when it goes wrong, it's a tramp. It's never content to stay at home. It's always out wandering. Ecclesiastes 6, 7 says, All the labor of a man is for his mouth, for self-preservation and enjoyment, and yet his desire is not satisfied. Conversation one time between Jim Clark, who was the founder of the internet service uh, Netscape, and uh, he, was, he was talking about wealth, and he said, you know what, I, I will be satisfied when I become a real after-tax billionaire. Then I'll retire. He mused for a while and then he said, well, actually, he said, I just want to make more money than Larry Ellison. Larry Ellison, he was the founder of Oracle. And then somebody noticing where this conversation was going said, well, what happens when you get more money than Larry Ellison? Will you want more than Bill Gates? And he said, no, 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 that'll never happen. And then a few minutes later, he said, you know, just for a moment, I would like to have the most. What, What is it about people that within them that perpetually creates for themselves the conditions of their own dissatisfaction. You know, it made me think of what Solomon observes in Ecclesiastes 4.4 when he says, I I look at people working and I see the ambition and it's motivated by envy and competition. What a waste. Smoke spitting into the wind, he says. So much of what we desire seems to be motivated by this competitiveness, this envy that grips our heart. We want what others have or or perhaps more than others have because somehow we think having the most will give us significance, will secure us, will give us meaning. I heard the story of an American student who traveled to India and he was on a bit of a spiritual search and he, he met a guru who said to him, you are poisoning your soul with your ambition and your envy and your need for success. He said, you study all night to get better grades than your friends. You try and get a certain girl, not because you particularly want her, but because everybody else does. He said, you need to leave behind your envy, your ambition, your competition. You need to join our loving community. He did. Six months later, he wrote a letter back to his parents, and it said this, Dear Mum and Dad, 
I know you weren't happy with my decision, but I want you to know that it's changed me. And for the first time in my life, I am at peace. There's no competition here. No one trying to get ahead of the others. This way of life is so in harmony with my inner soul that in only six months, I have become number two disciple in our entire community. And I think I can be number one by June. Competition and envy, the need to be at the top of the heap. We compete with the Joneses, somehow thinking that being at the top of the heap will give us meaning and purpose. Listen, Solomon, from the top of the heap, says it doesn't. It's meaningless. It's pointless. It will never give you the summum bonum of life. We constantly set our affections and desires on things that can't shoulder the weight of those expectations. We are insatiable creatures, but Miroslav Volf, the theologian, says the only proper object for the insatiability of the human species is the mystery of the infinite God. That's where our insatiability has to be focused, because that infiniteness, the mystery of God can sustain that and lead us into fullness. You know, they did a questionnaire with people from every uh, income bracket, from the very lowest to the very highest. They asked them the same question. They said, how much money do you need to be happy? You know, the fascinating response was the same. In every income bracket, they all said 20% more. From the lowest to the highest. If I could just have 20% more, I'd be happy. We're insatiable when it comes to wealth. It's hard to get because we can never reach the goalposts. Secondly, Solomon tells us not only is it hard to get, it's hard to keep because there is something unstable about wealth, the instability of wealth. Here's the second, the more you have statement. Wealth is hard to keep because the more you have, the more other people will come after it. Verse 11 of Ecclesiastes 5 says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. Or as the message says, the more loot you get, the more looters show up. When stuff increases, so do the number of people who want to share in your stuff. Have you noted when people get rich, they need a maid to clean their house, a gardener to do the lawns, an au pair to look after the kids, a chauffeur to drive the car, an accountant to keep the books, a broker to invest the money, a bodyguard to protect the family, and that's not even considering the IRD who comes after you for the government share. When loose increases, so do those who eat it. So do friends, so-called. Proverbs says, the rich have many friends. I was sharing with the congregation this morning. I got a call one time from a friend of mine we'd known for many, many years, and he'd just come into a significant amount of money, millions and millions of dollars. And he asked if Karen and I would go and sit with him and just talk about what that might look like in terms of their, their, their lifestyle. I felt completely out of my depth, you know, if they'd asked me, how do you, how do you deal with $200 or maybe, maybe maximum 2000 I might have had some ideas, but $12 million was a bit more than I have ever dealt with. One of the things they did say to me was, we don't know who our friends are because suddenly people are coming out of the woodwork from our past and suddenly they want to renew their friendship. How do we know, how do we know this is real? You know, like the prodigal son, people find out when they get wealth that 
you know, trouble comes and, and all of the friends just suddenly disappear. They were fair weather friends. So the more you have, the more people come after it. The more you have, the more worry it creates. Verse 12 of that chapter says, the sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. Once we have it, we're frightened that we might not be able to keep it. Jesus talked a lot about wealth. In fact, wealth and resources were Jesus's favorite subject. I know people don't like to hear about that when they come to church, but Jesus talked more about that than he talked about anything else, primarily because he knows how that has the capacity to capture our hearts like almost nothing else does. And he talked about the anxiety of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. And when riches increase, anxiety increases. In Matthew chapter 6, he said, you can't serve two masters simultaneously. You'll either love one and hate the other or hate one and love the other. You, you can't do it simultaneously. And then he says, you can't love God and mammon at the same time. Then in that passage, he goes on three times in just a few verses to say, don't be anxious, don't be anxious, don't be anxious. There is something about the accumulation of wealth that ups the ante when it comes to anxiety. And I want to say something to you, constant anxiety or worry about our possessions may be an indication of our disordered loves and the fact that we are looking to a wrong God. This passage actually says the stomach of a rich man won't allow him to sleep. We don't know whether it's indigestion from too much rich food or stomach ulcers from too much anxiety, but sleep escapes him. You know the poor man that says he sleeps soundly. He doesn't really mind what's happening on the Dow Jones or the NZX 50. He does, he's got nothing invested. So whether it goes up, down, or sideways is irrelevant to him. But the rich man is constantly checking his phone to see how the stocks are doing. When it's up, he's up. When it's down, he's down. The anxiety levels. You know, it's been noted that in the early years, the rich man expends health to get wealth. In his latter years, he expends wealth to get health. It's hard to hold wealth because wealth tends to be isolating. The more you have, the lonelier you become. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 says, I turned my head and saw yet another wisp of smoke on its way to nothingness. A solitary person, completely alone, no children, no family, no friends, yet working obsessively late into the night, compulsively greedy for more and more, never bothering to ask, why am I working like a dog, never having any fun, and who cares? More smoke. A bad business. Now listen, the fact that this man is alone and doesn't have any children or family doesn't actually mean he was an only child who never married. It may mean, and in many cases it does mean, he had them, but he lost them. In the pursuit of wealth, we leave behind the most precious things that we have, which are relationships. It's a common story. So many divorced from their spouse, alienated from their family, a workaholic working seven days a week, compulsively making money. But for what and for whom? I talked to someone the other day who spends something like 27 out of the 30 days in every month away from their family. And he just commented to me and he said, I am walking to support a family that I never see. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. 
I heard of a man who died of a coronary thrombosis at 51 years of age. He'd worked seven days a week, pretty much from seven till nine, for years until his heart gave out. At the funeral, his employer said to his wife, trying to comfort him, I know that you'll miss him very much. And she just smiled and said, I already have. The fact that he's been lost really is just the full stop because we lost him years before. In Luke's gospel, there are, there are two parables that have to do with rich men dying. One of them talks about what the rich man left behind. The other talked about what lays ahead of the rich man. Both of them are very, very sobering. The first starts in Luke chapter 12, verse 16, and Jesus starts the parable by saying, the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And then it continues by saying, and he said to himself, or as the message translation says, he talked to himself. And he said, you know, I've got goods for many years. I've built barns and I'll put them away. And and I'm I'm set up. You know how the story goes. In In our incredibly individualistic culture, we tend to read right over the top of that statement he said to himself. We don't give it a second thought. But a Middle Eastern reader would be stunned by that statement. It's extremely rare in those settings to find people making decisions without reference to a larger community. In those communities, life is lived in a tight-knit community where even the smallest of transactions is worthy of hours of discussion. The normal man in this setting does his thinking in community. He does his speaking in community. This man is doing it alone. Why is he alone? Why is there nobody that he can talk to? Well, perhaps he's trampled on his friends as he strives to climb the ladder of success. If I can only go up a few more rungs, if I can only get just a little more, the insatiability, and he climbs and climbs until he's all alone, trampled on his friends. What he doesn't realize is the ladder he's climbing is leaning up against the wrong wall. I was joking this morning and saying, you know, so many people, even in church, are ladder climbing. And it gives a whole new meaning to the phrase, ladder day saints. Perhaps because of his wealth, he had abandoned his family. I'll tell you one thing wealth does, it makes you cynical about the motives of other people. You tend not to trust other people. And wealth out of balance has the effect of isolating you. Here's a phrase worth remembering if you don't remember anything else. Remember that winning alone is called losing. At the end of life, winning alone is called losing. Over the years, I've had the opportunity as a pastor to sit with many people in their last hours. And one thing I have never, ever heard pass the lips of one person as they were staring down the barrel of eternity was the phrase, I wished I'd spent more time at the office. Can't begin to tell you the number of times they lamented over the fact that their family was splintered and broken by their own foolishness. Winning alone is losing. Wealth is hard because the more you have, the more harm it can do to you when you hold on to it illicitly. Verse 13, Solomon says, There's a grievous evil I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to their own hurt. 
Solomon made the same observation in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24, when he said, there is one that scatters and yet increases. This, it's kind of paradoxical. You give away, but it comes back to you. And then he said, there is one who withholds more than is right, and it leads to poverty. You know, the people who hold on to their money unwisely think that they are protecting themselves and securing themselves against poverty. This passage actually says that the stingy person isn't delivered from poverty, but is delivered to poverty. You say, well, how can that be if they've got a big bank balance? Well, poverty actually isn't about the size of your bank balance. Poverty has to do with an attitude that fears loss, that fears not to have. And so we strive for more. But how much will secure you against the rainy day? We don't know, so we keep pushing. And it actually delivers you into that spirit of poverty that is not just about not having but a fear of not having being a stingy person doesn't deliver you from poverty it delivers you to poverty and I want to tell you if you know stingy people you know they're not pleasant to be around they aren't happy people J.J. Astor was a multi-millionaire who had the dubious reputation of being the wealthiest passenger and victim on the Titanic and he said one time, I am the most miserable person on the earth. Andrew Carnegie said, you know what? He said, my observation is that millionaires very rarely smile. And Henry Ford acknowledged that he was much, much happier as a simple mechanic than when he became a multimillionaire. So wealth is hard to get. Wealth is hard to keep. And wealth is hard to part with. Wealth is completely unable to deliver on its promises. Verse 14 and 15 of chapter 5 says, And then loses it all in a bad business deal. He fathered a child, but he hasn't a cent to leave to him. He arrived naked from the womb of his mother, and he'll leave in the same condition with nothing. Here's a couple of the more you have statements. The more you have, the more you'll lose. And the more you have, the more you will leave behind. And there are two ways to leave it behind. Before you die... Or when you die. The first is a persistent possibility. The second is an unavoidable reality. A fortune can be lost in one bad deal or on one bad day at the stock market. You know what? The reality is our hold on wealth is incredibly tenuous. Proverbs chapter 27 says this. Don't take possessions for granted. They don't last forever, you know. And the message translation of Proverbs 23 verse 4 says, don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. Restrain yourself. Riches disappear in the blink of an eye. Wealth sprouts wings and flies off into the wild blue yonder. People say money talks. Yes, it does. My experience is its most often used words are goodbye. You can labor all your life and in a day on the stock market it can be gone. Even if you're smart enough or lucky enough to keep it during your life, the reality is you'll leave it when you die because there are no sh pockets in shrouds. And I've said this so many times at so many funerals from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7, for we brought nothing into this world and it is sure we can take nothing out. Jack Benny, the famous American comedian, was a self-confessed miser. And he loved to tell a story that he was held up by a mugger one day who said, money or your life. After an appreciable silence, the mugger said, well, Jack Benny said, don't rush me, don't rush me, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. 
Benny, speaking about his wealth on one occasion, quipped, if I can't take it with me, then I won't go. But he did. We all do. When the banker Rockefeller died, somebody asked his accountant out of interest, how much did he leave behind? The accountant said, all of it. John Ortberg, who's, I recommend as an, just such a good author, he amusingly spoke about playing Monopoly as a young boy with his grandmother. She was apparently a wonderfully godly woman, but when it came to Monopoly, she was Genghis Khan. She was ruthless, and she regularly destroyed this young boy, bankrupting him again and again and again as he was trying to get to grips with the subtleties of Monopoly. Her first rule was acquire. Her second rule was acquire. Her third rule, you guessed it, acquire. And she just was merciless. No mercy, no fear, John said. He said one of the highlights of his life was as an older boy coming back and beating her and, saying, and beating her badly, you know, beating her into submission, wiping her off the board. Her second rule, and I think in this rule, she was actually trying to teach young John something. She said, when the game is over, everything goes back in the box. Play hard, but remember, when the game is over, it all goes back in the box. You know, when life is over, all that you can take with you goes into that box. And I want to tell you, there's not much room in there. Actually, it was Alexander the Great who said, when you bury me, leave my hands outside the coffin or outside the shroud to show everybody that my hands are empty and that I took nothing with me. Plato called that awareness melithanatao, which is the mindfulness of death. It comes to us all. And you have to have something that goes beyond death. And I tell you, money doesn't. You get to leave it all behind. So Solomon's conclusion regarding wealth as a pathway to meaning is that it doesn't, it cannot deliver. It, it's futile. It's pointless. It's hard to get. It's hard to keep. It's hard to part with. But part with it, you will. When we're looking at Ecclesiastes, what we've said is that Ecclesiastes is the questions, the rest of the Bible is the answers, and this is very much true in terms of the area of resources. The Bible has a huge amount to say on how a believer should deal with material things, with resources, and we haven't got the time to go anywhere close to exploring um, the, the nuances of, of what the scripture says about possessions. But in finishing, let me just give you a couple of bullet points, okay? The first bullet point is this. God's not opposed to wealth per se. It's possible actually to be a person of faith and to be relatively wealthy. David, Job, Abraham, they all were. And they were people of faith. The two are not necessarily antithetic, antithetical. Jesus isn't lifting poverty up as the church has sometimes done and said you know to be really spiritual you have to be poor the bible doesn't say that but what the bible does say is it's very clearly difficult to balance being a wealthy person with faith in fact jesus speaking to the rich young man who had turned away from him he says how hard it is for people who are trusting in wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven 
when there is wealth, the possibility of our trust shifting to it is very, very real. And Jesus says, it is a great challenge to handle wealth well. Another bullet point is that you have to, I think, in order to be able to handle wealth well, you have to understand and look at it through the eyes of a steward and not that of an owner. The biblical revelation is that all you have in your possession has been given to you as a trust. You are its steward, you are not its owner, and you will be held responsible for how you use it. We do not live in an under-the-sun world. We live in an above-the-sun world with an above-the-sun perspective, and we understand that this age is not the sum of the ages. There is an age to come, and how we handle wealth in this age will be judged in that age that is to come. Have a vision for your wealth for the possessions that God has put in your trust, have a vision for them that go beyond this world. Jesus told a story about a shrewd uh, servant who, knowing that he was about to be dismissed, went to his master's creditors and, and started cutting their bill, making it smaller than it was. And you'll remember the story. Jesus actually commended the steward, not for his dishonesty, but for the way that he used wealth to set himself up with friendships after he was dismissed from his post. And then the crunch of the story is, why don't you as people of faith use wealth in a way that in another age people will come and say, thank you for what you did. Thank you that your money brought a well to my village and saved my children because of clear water. Thank you that the money you gave changed my life, gave me an education, opened up opportunities for me. Thank you for the wealth that you gave that allowed the gospel to come to my village and change my life and my family's, well, and my family's life. Thank you for what you gave. Have a vision for the money that God's put in your trust that goes beyond this age, that is mediated through an above-the-sun perspective. Another bullet point. As followers of the most generous person in the universe, as followers of the giving God, start being generous. He wants to see his generosity sired into the lives of those who are called to look like him on the earth. He's the most generous person, if I can put it that way, in the universe. He wants us as his children to be generous. You can make a living by what you get, but you make a life by what you give. Start to be generous. Start to be generous. Let me take that out of the realm of kind of the mysterious, you know, be generous. Go away and be generous. Let me take it to something really, really practical. How do you start being generous? The Bible doesn't leave us up in the air. It actually tells us, it says, start by giving a tenth of what God gives you. Start there. It's called the tithe. The word tithe literally means a tenth. Start there. That's how you can start to be generous. Now, whenever I say this, I can see the eyes rolling and, oh God, here we go. You know, tithing. First of all, you know, every time I talk about it, somebody says, it's an Old Testament concept, Don. <laughs> you know, haven't you heard of the New Testament? Yeah, mate, I have. And I'll tell you something about the New Testament. It's bigger and better than the Old Testament. And if you don't believe in tithing, 
That's your right, but I'll only accept that if you're bigger than better and bigger and better in terms of your New Testament expression. Don't come to me and say, I don't tithe because I'm in the New Testament and you give less than the Old Testament, if that's your argument. But let me tell you a scripture, if, 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 you, if you want one, to, to let you know that tithing is not an Old Testament principle, it's a biblical principle. You go and read Matthew 23, 23. It's really easy to read. And remember, 23, 23, Matthew. Read it in a red letter Bible because it's in red ink. And it says, Jesus, talking about the tithing practices of the Pharisees, he said, yes, these things ought you to do. Now, if Jesus is about to debunk, or, or as people say, you know, Jesus has debunked all the Old Testament laws, here's a perfect opportunity for Jesus to make it really, really clear because somebody asks him about this stuff. Why wouldn't he say, listen, that's Old Testament we're in a new dispensation. No, he doesn't. He says, these things ought you to do. In the Living Bible, it says, Jesus said, yes, you should tithe. <laughs> that's, that's giving for dummies, 101. <laughs> you know, I, I need that because I'm, I'm, I'm in the dummy category. Yes, you should tithe. You start, start with 10%. Some people think, God, start with it. That's the be all and end all. 10%, holy cows. That's where you start. That's what generosity begins with. But it doesn't stop there. It goes beyond that. And Jesus wants us to be phenomenally generous people. So, so start there. You know the arguments I get about, well, and do I have to give that much? Can I, can I tithe 6%? Do you realize how stupid that sounds? Let me translate for you. Can I 10%, 6%? That's literally what they're asking me. Or, you know, the perennial question, Don, do I have to tithe on the net or the gross? Listen, <laughs> try saying this to your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend. What's the least amount of money I can spend on your birthday without severing this relationship? <laughs> I suggest you do it with the car running. That attitude severs the relationship. They think you... you I, won't, I won't say the word I was thinking of. It's too late. It's too late. The very attitude has revealed something of your heart. Learn to be generous. And last bullet point. Whatever you have or whatever you don't have, Learn to live with gratitude. Learn to be content. Paul said, you know what? I know how to abound and be happy. He said, but I also know how to have absolutely nothing and be content as well. Sometimes overflowing, sometimes straightened to the point of, holy mackerel, I don't know how I'm going to get through. But content, because he has a relationship with an incredibly generous God. And that's the focus of his life. He's not worried about the Dow Jones or the NZX50 or, or anything else because that's not where his heart is. It's not where his trust is. He's just a channel for resources. Learn how to be a channel for resources. A guy I know once was given $50. Somebody just said, here, Jerry, it's 50 bucks for you. Do what, do what you like with it. So he's holding this $50 in his hand. And he said, you know what? I, I, I don't need $50. Oh, I mean, I can spend it on something, I know that, you know, but I don't need it. So he gave it away. Within a week, someone gave him 50 bucks. 
that's funny. So he said, gave it away. He said, to the point that we, you know, I, I had this conversation. He said, I have given and received that $50 15 times. We don't have the joy of seeing those things because we go. <laughs> and what we don't know is somebody else is going. <laughs> Haggai says, you put it into a bag and it's got holes in it. When I was a kid, we loved eeling. We used to go down to the creek that was nearby our place and, we, and we'd, we'd get eels. And I heard this story one time about this this mass migration of eels in our creek, and they came through literally in their hundreds. And my friends were so excited, they were just gaffing these eels and throwing them in their sacks, you know. And, and after about five minutes of gaffing and throwing the eels in the sacks, they thought, this isn't getting any heavier. They looked down, there's a hole this big. <laughs> and the eels were going in one you know, big hole and coming out the other. And all that effort for, for absolutely nothing. Does that sound like anybody's finances? Yeah? Not going to admit it, eh? <laughs> Sounds like life sometimes. And Jesus said, look, when you're trying to put it in a bag with holes in it, you're wasting your time. Why don't you just be a channel, learn how to pass it on, learn how to be generous. Start with 10%. See what God does. And then just go from there. Some of you may have read the book about a man called Letunier, who, the book's called Mover of Men and Mountains. He, he, he started off tithing. He ended up keeping the tithe and giving 90%. And he said, I don't know how this works. He said, the money comes in and I shovel it out as fast as I can. He said, I think God's just got a bigger shovel than I've got. It's the one time in the scripture where God says, try me, test me, and see if this works or not. You try me. It's the one time. Otherwise, we're told not to tempt God. But in this, we say, he says, come on, try it, and see what happens. Okay? As a, as a means of meaning and purpose, fruitless. As a source of service and ministry, incredibly fruitful. It's our choice. With, with a word like this, you know, um, the reality is we, we don't believe it. We don't believe it. We hear the stories of lotto winners, millionaires, and we know all of us have heard the research that they are often more unhappy after their winnings than before it, and many of them, if they could give it back, would give it back. And, and you know, in our hearts we say, but I would do it differently. I know I could be happy. I know that I would be wise, and, and it would be okay if you entrusted me with that money, Lord. And the reality is wealth entangles itself in our hearts. And, and for many of us, if I were to say, how much more do you need? You would say 20%, if you are honest. When in actual fact, it's a mirage and you run off into the desert looking for the 20% that's just out there and you die there. And, and the message tonight is, who are you trusting in? Where does your trust lie? So my challenge tonight is do something about it. 
don't just, ah, good message, enjoyed that, whatever, and carry right on without actually assessing where you stand in terms of your stewardship before the Lord regarding your generosity. Let, let the Word of God confront you. Donald prayed earlier on in the evening. He said, Lord, send your Word. Let your Spirit hover over us. Take the disordered loves of our lives and start to restore. And, and there's probably not an area that's more needed than, than this area to be restored. Maybe with the exception of our sexuality. Power, sex, and money. Three small words with absolute huge implications for us as disciples of Jesus. Let this word press against you. All right, let it, let it press against you. Don't shrug it off. Let the Spirit of the Lord challenge you in terms of your life going forward as a follower of Jesus. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.